This is the iMarket Podcast, brought to you by the Marketing Society of Kenya, EABL, and Capital FM. In this episode, I speak to Vika Smeta, Managing Partner at Ogilvy Africa, about agency-client relationships as companies embrace digital transformation. EABL Marketing has prioritized digital transformation, starting with in-housing digital capabilities and moving into digital commerce. Interestingly, Vikas doesn't like the term digital transformation, and he tells me why. We talk about setting up of the EABL in-house digital agency, Digitribe, and what it did for the short and long-term objectives of the business. Vikas and I also discuss what it takes for agencies to ensure they are partners and not just vendors to their clients. We talk about how agencies can respond to clients' needs faster whilst optimizing for outcomes versus outputs. I must admit that Vikas has pushed me beyond my comfort zone to start thinking and executing for the future of work today. I hope you enjoy the many lessons from this wise man, Vikas Meta. Welcome, Vikas. So glad you could join me on this podcast. Uh, so this is the first MSK podcast from the Marketing Society of Kenya. And for this season, um, EABL is sponsoring it or partnering with MSK to do this. And hence, that is why I am the host. So for full disclosure, I know you very well. Okay, not in that way. <laughs> Your agency, Ogilvy Africa, is an agency of record for EABL. And you are actually the agency um, that has partnered with EABL to launch our in-house creative digital agency, Digitribe, right? Yes. Okay. Do you remember the first time we met? Um, actually, I do. I first met you at, a, I think it was an AmCham event. Really? Where uh, we happened to be sitting on the same table. And that's when I yes, first met you. Yes, it was their Thanksgiving dinner. Yes, there you go. At, I think it was at Serena, Nairobi Serena Hotel. Yep, yep, yep. Yes, I remember. Okay, because you had just taken on this role yeah, as Yeah, I was managing. about 15 minutes old in the country, but yes. <laughs> <laughs> I remember, that's true. Okay, okay. Yeah, so we first met during that AmCham event, but then after that, we had a series of interactions because we were actually trying to take Digitribe from paper to action. So this was in uh, late 2019, right? Uh, Digitribe was launched in March of 2020, a couple of weeks before the pandemic hit uh, Kenya and the first case was announced. And the great news is we were ready to roll out. So tell me, what is Digitribe to you and why is it important that we did put this together? So I think uh, Digitribe turned out to be an idea whose time has come and I think at the time we were still conceptualizing it. We didn't really acknowledge the significance of what we were getting into. But like you said, the timing and how the world came to a standstill at the time we were bringing it together probably made it get a little more meaning than we start, than it started out to be. So in a lot of ways, uh, Digitribe is a great testament to what partnerships look like going forward between uh, clients and their agencies. But I think also at a fundamental level, what it's what it's done is created a new way of working for your organization and mine. And it feels like that there is a element of a blueprint which can start now shaping how partnerships look going forward. But from a functional point of view, I think what it does to the discipline of marketing is there's been this debate around the world of What's the role of agency partners for clients going forward? And also this huge uh, or a significant drive towards in-housing of digital capabilities within within the company. And I think what Digitribe does is hits the sweet spot of something that's in the house but not in-house. 
provides access to talent capabilities, competencies where they are needed, while still allowing for subject matter experts to sit in the respective companies. So it is an interesting model and it's an idea that's thankfully taking a life of its own now. Yeah, and maybe just explain the model better. You know, from my point of view as, you know, the Digitribe client, what worked for us is at EABL, we have a huge portfolio of brands that are actively marketing. I think the product range is probably 30 brands that we're actively marketing. So prior to us in-housing digital, we had multiple digital agencies that we worked with. And we were not actually working in a very agile way. A lot of our brands were not putting them in culture. We were literally blasting advertising at our consumers versus actually, you know, connecting with consumers online. Um, it also came at a time when we, as EABL, we were increasing our media investment online. So there was a need for change. Uh, and I can't even remember how the discussion started between myself and you guys, like saying, this is going to be the solution. Like, let's in-house this and it's funny we're saying in-house because when we did launch everybody was working from home so i don't know what (laughs) in-housing they were not physically sitting in the office now they are so what is that model and why does it work i think the model evolved as it went along and like you said and i think the whole subject of in-housing not just in ebr in any organization's life the moment a subject becomes mission critical there's a tendency to in-house it so when you look at banking and financial services they were probably one of the first categories to in-house data intelligence because data was mission critical if you look at analytics e-commerce companies that thrive on data tend to go in-house so i think the fundamental starting point is that for any company the moment a competency becomes mission critical, there's a tendency to say, let's in-house it. Now, the challenge with that is that while in-housing gives you proximity, control, and just the ability to influence it on a day-to-day level, where most in-housing initiatives fail is the company in-housing those competencies doesn't necessarily have the subject matter expertise to give the talent or the technology involved to do it the right amount of support and the environment in which it can become a thriving ecosystem on itself. Now, in the past, consultants used to play that role Mm -hmm. where they come in and build and do a competence building on a turnkey basis. But the challenge with consultants is they author a blueprint and then pretty much walk away because when rubber hits the road, the real challenges which present themselves have have also got to be dealt with and most things fail at the stage of operationalizing instead of at the stage of conceptualizing. So I think what we found, and I wouldn't take too much credit for masterminding it at all, but I think with the kind of mutual support and mutual confidence both the companies had in each other, we were committed to going on a journey together to see how it ends. And I think what that did was created an ecosystem which today, if I actually, if I step back from the Digitribe setup today, And I look at it, and if somebody were to ask me, does it belong to EABL? The answer is no. Does it belong to Ogilvy? The answer is no. But what it does is brings the best of both organizations and tries to solve a problem that if our consumer is thinking, posting, and giving us data on a real-time basis, the onus is on us as a company to respond to it in real time. Yeah. And what I think Digitribe does is gives us the machinery to do it every day rather than once a quarter. There you go. And and I think, um, you know, for businesses like ours, we're constantly in a need to respond to the macro environment. And, you know, the pandemic was definitely an example for us where overnight bars were closed, where almost 80% of our business is in the on-trade, in the bars. 
So what is the role of agencies to also respond to their clients' needs faster? I think in a lot of ways, the last 550 odd days since pandemic. You've been counting. <laughs> I do. And and because it's important because, uh, yeah. see, I think every organization and every business has gone through its five stages of grief before <laughs> accepting what this is meant to be because all of us started with the initial reaction of doing contingency plans where the well we didn't know we thought we we're going to be home for three weeks now exactly. it's been 550 days so the first contingency plan we or the first response plan we wrote and this was i think march 15th last year the assumption was this is a four to six week disruption yeah and it was a plan with a shelf life of four to six weeks and i think as time went by we realized that this is possibly a situation where the what the endpoint looks like is something that's going to evolve. We still don't know, and I know the term "new normal" has probably been the most used word on the internet for the last two years. But I don't think we know with certainty what the new normal looks like. So I think what we've had to, and most companies, including agencies, have had to make peace with it that this is the transient normal. And I think what it does is, to quote a cliche, "change is the only constant." And this pandemic is a live example of how we are dealing with it on a day-to-day -day basis. And what we realized is that within the first, post the first quarter where, where both us and our clients were pretty much scrambling for what next, we've settled down with the idea of living in this transient normal for a little longer. And what that has done is nobody has the luxury of writing three-year and five-year plans anymore. We have three and five-year ambitions but not necessarily a plan. And what that does is one way of looking at it could be that it's put a lot of emphasis on a tactical focus. But I think that's probably the wrong way of reading the situation because in a transient environment, strategy and goals become all the more important or probably a little more important than they used to be in a static world. So how we've sort of responded to that when it comes to our clients, and sorry for that long build-up, no, but how we've responded to that is a lot more focus on outcomes rather than outputs or inputs. And what that does is starts impacting the work processes, the competencies, the workflows, even to some extent the commercial models with which we work with our clients. So we are putting a lot of emphasis because we know that every CMO is today a little more short-term accountable to the CFO than they used to be in a good days. And therefore, if your partners are working with you with outcomes as the goal, I think we should be prepared even as agencies to even put money on the table and link our own compensation models to it. So I think what it's done is with clients where the trust and the mutual dependence is high, it's brought the partnerships closer and the transactional relationships are now a lot easier to tell than they used to be in the past. So it's it's acted as sort of a magnetic force yeah, which has brought the complementary ends closer together and drifted the peripheral ends further apart. Yeah. So so the closer you are to your clients, obviously the more likely they are to treat you as real partners. And I like what you're saying about owning business outcomes together. So what's your point of view on if we're truly going to own business outcomes together? When things are good, we share on that, you know, more of like a pay for performance or profit sharing or you know, an incentive plan, uh, Diageo has, we call it a performance uh, incentive plan, where we actually say, when we do perform well from a business outcome, you do reap into that. And when if we don't perform well, and it could be a reason, it's a macro reason, not necessarily, you know, 
something that affects the business performance. You also share in that as well with us. What's your point of view on that? I think uh, if we call each other partners, partnerships cannot be run without putting skin in the game. There you go. And if it is a contact sport with skin in the game, you will get bruised every once in a while. But I think it's a better place to be in and nothing defines a partnership or makes a partnership stronger than the fact or stronger than the knowledge that you're in it together, you fly together, you sing together. So the ground rules for that, and they have to be ground rules through every partnership. The point of view we are taking in Africa is that as the agency partner, we are happy to accept the CMO's KPIs as is. And there is obviously challenges around attribution. And like you said, there are macro factors that sometimes either increase the scale of a success or come in the way of a success. Or black swan events like the pandemic. Like the pandemic. Yeah. But if you drill it down to a very basic level and strip it of all complexity, if you are in it together, when you have a great year, please be generous about sharing the spoils <laughs> with your partners. So that when you're in a bad year, they are happy to happy to share the injuries with you. Makes sense. Makes sense. So what is the one thing the pandemic has taught you to do or not do as a marketer? There are lots of things. But I think the biggest learning is probably the realization to start having a healthy disrespect for best practice because by definition and, and, and both of us work for global companies which live and die by best practices the assumption behind every best practice or I think the flaw with every best practice is the evidence comes from the past and the rearview mirror is not necessarily the best determinant of what's out in the in the windshield and most best practices are examples of disruption when they are done for the first time it's the mass adoption of disruption that makes them best practice. And I think when we look in the context of Black Swan events like the last year and a half, I've personally believed that best practice can sometimes be the biggest enemy of innovation. So it's probably not the best thing to do is to junk all the best practices you have as an organization because they're extremely valuable. But when you're encountered with an opportunity to innovate, it's probably useful to also disregard the best practice in the hope that that's probably your only way to create the next best practice yourself. So, And, and, and the pandemic has <laughs> made it apparent that informed instinct is sometimes better than analysis paralysis. Okay. But what's the in-between for that? So you have informed instinct, you have over-analyzing things. Are those the only two options? See, and this is where no, you're absolutely right, but I don't see those as an either or because large organizations are ambidextrous. Yeah. They are multi-headed hydras in some ways, right? Yeah. I think it's upon the leadership to deploy certain aspects of thinking towards safety and lean into best practices to guarantee minimum results, but also create a culture of frequent failure so that people are encouraged to sort of try things which are a little beyond the book and give them the permission to fail. Yeah, failing bravely. You know, um, Digitribe was recently awarded the prestigious Diageo's Pride of Africa Award as being digital champions, which is really great for both of us as partners. However, you know, in that journey of Digitribe's been live for over a year and a half now, We've had a lot of failures, a lot, maybe that are not seen, you know, by the consumer, let me put it that way. What would you say, what do we need to do to now 
fail bravely, you know, take those le- lessons and continue being, you know, champions. Like, you know, like they say, it's easy to get to, be, to number one. It's harder to stay there. I think as marketers, we need to probably culturally steal with pride from the Silicon Valley there. If, if you look at some of the most innovative companies in the world, the failure rate of abandoned pilots, like Apple probably releases one out of every 10 products they test. Really? And company after company, you will see, and, and I think I hold the technology industry in very high regard on this, that early enough, and probably this has to do with the genesis that most of them started as startups, the ability to fail, learn from the failure, pivot and create that into an opportunity is hardwired into their DNA. Some of those are now Fortune 500 companies, but if you look at legacy organizations, historically, we've put a very high price tag on failure. And what I was talking about best practice, best practice is your insurance to not fail. Even culturally, for every podcast I've recorded, I've been asking about failure and not everybody wants to talk about failure. Because trying and failing is probably the most necessary ingredient to anything innovative. Whereas companies we falter is that to avoid failure, we often fail to try. And I think that's the biggest barrier to innovation. Yeah. So I think there needs to be almost an institutionalized approach in the company to not just legitimize failure, but to encourage it. Because my belief is if we have smart people working for us, if we gave them permission to try new things, we have also got to give them the permission to fail. And even with a failure rate of a 90%, you will end up with 10% innovations that are better than what your best practice will give. So in the worst case scenario, you're 10% better off than you are today. I like that. So there's this whole buzzword around digital transformation and marketing in a digital world. What does digital transformation mean to you as a marketing, you know, as a leader? See, Mark, let's talk about marketing in a digitized world first. Okay. And it pains me a little that in, in, in forums and conferences, we still talk about it as if it's a new thing. Let's first acknowledge Google is over a quarter of a century old a company today. And Google was not the first digital company we know of. Yeah. Right. So my first viewpoint on that subject is that I think we need to stop trying to do it and do it as companies. And when it comes to digital transformation, I think it's a bit of a flawed lexicon simply because digital transformation is relevant for digital companies, for companies running a business. It's a digitally enabled business transformation that should be the goal. And therefore, in contexts of general application, I sometimes find the term digital transformation a little misleading. And one of the things, let's talk about what's the goal, why should companies digitally transform? And I think the purpose with which, let's say a consumer goods company, a telecom company, a banking company, there needs to be an end goal why you are digitally transformed. And I think the most noble goal for that is customer centricity, because all of us want to become high CX organization and give customer singular view of everything and all the experiences. Give customers a singular view of how we can give them a fabulous experience at every interaction point with my company. Now, digital is a great way to create that single view of the customer. So I think companies need to be customer centric. And if that's the end goal with which you start your digital transform, in most cases, the challenges are that if you look at it from a marketing ecosystem point of view, most marketers are product centric. Okay. If you look at a bank, 
there is the retail segment, the SME segment, the products, the loans, the assets, the liabilities. If you look at a telco, it's prepaid, it's postpaid, it's 4G, it's money, it's data, it's television. If you look at your own company, it's beers, it's spirits. So I think as businesses, we were organized to be product centric. Now that's the external facing view of your business. When it comes to the internal view of how we run those companies, it's again siloed by function. There is marketing, there's finance, there's HR, there's admin and so on and so forth. Now, what tends to happen in most companies is that the subject of digital transformation is either driven at a product level because we are product centric as companies or at a departmental level. So the CFO is driving the digital transformation of the financial processes. The CMO is doing the same with digital marketing and every function is driving a digital transformation agenda. What that gives you even at the end point of success is many digitally transformed functions, but not a digitally transformed business. And I think the companies that understand that and are ready to start having a bit of a healthy disrespect for their own org chart. Like if I am prepared to utilize my financial data or data coming from the HR teams or data coming from the marketing team all towards the one goal of giving every customer a delightful experience at every touch point. That's when I'm approaching the business transformation subject and the companies that have put it into action. And by the way, they talk about it a lot less than the larger companies do <laughs> are actually quietly gone about it where this agenda is driven by the CEO and every function aligns towards how do I become a customer obsessed company? Do you have any examples of companies that are doing it right? Let me actually take an example, which I think everybody listening to this podcast would have experienced in the last 24 hours. Look at the user experience of watching something on Netflix. Let's take a scenario. You were watching an episode of a season of a show last night on your television. You were about to doze off when Netflix tells you, are you still watching? And right. that's the time you decide to go to sleep, say no, it turns itself off. Next morning, you're in a car on the back seat on your iPad and you're stuck in traffic getting frustrated. You open Netflix. In the continue watching section, the first thing you see is the show, the season, the episode that you were watching. Right. And when you touch that on your iPad, it'll resume the episode maybe three seconds before where you left off last night. All happening in the background without you having to configure it. Correct. Now that's a seamless customer experience. Yeah. Let me give another example because I listen to, I do both Kindle and Audible. So I listen to books and I read books yeah. on my Kindle and I have two different phones or two different devices. So... I will switch between them and they all, it always asks me, do you, would you like to go back to where you were from the last, the last place you opened the, the book or the, the audible? Fantastic. I love it. I love it. So I, they don't have to remember which page was I on, on my other phone versus on this phone. And it just connects with each other. Now try and imagine, take a legacy business like banking for your bank, which services you in a branch on an ATM on a kiosk, on a website, on a call center and an app for them to replicate this level of seamlessness of the experience is a lot harder because they were built on a product centric or a channel centric premise. Gotcha. Because if I mean, the ideal experience of a bank on this basis would be that yesterday I walked into a branch 
had a conversation with the teller about some changes to my account. Right. Next morning, if I log into the banking app, does it carry on the conversation from where I left it yesterday or not? And nine times out of ten, a 200-year-old multi-billion dollar <laughs> bank will struggle to deliver that. Scene. Now, that's the challenge of business transformation for legacy companies. But customer centricity, the gold standard is that. And which is why this subject is important. And I think because marketing is probably the most customer-facing part of most companies or the most customer-aware part of most companies, a CMO may not be the leader of the business transformation agenda, but is probably the biggest driver of it in companies that do it well. Why is that? Because by nature, you're supposed to understand the consumer better than anybody Definitely. else. Definitely. Yeah. And the moment you bring that and enable that proximity yeah. to actionable insights, you can be the most useful thing the company has. Yeah. Which CMO or marketing director do you respect greatly and why? So I've been lucky to have worked with several really talented marketing heads. But if I had to pick one, I think the ex-Burger King Global CMO, Fernando Machado, yeah. comes to mind. And I've sort of had an opportunity to see him in action in different parts of his career journey, including okay. his time at Unilever and then at Burger King. I think he's a, what I like about him and what probably makes him stick out from some of the more seasoned CMOs that I've had a chance to work with is this appetite to go beyond the best practice and the and a fundamental belief that uh, working with him, it feels like it's okay to fail. And when leaders like that are able to create that environment, what it does is it empowers the hundreds of marketers you have in your organization to start pushing towards, can I do it better? And, and I think as most creative people really enjoy working with him. I was actually at a forum where one, I think it was the Luris, where one of, I have to remember the name of the creative director who had worked with him and said exactly that, that there was so much um, freedom to succeed that he enabled the agency. And there's a lot of co-creation between the BK team and the agency. But he's also been criticized a lot. What, what do some of his critics say about some of the campaigns that you've seen for BK? See, I'll tell you, criticism is a symptom that what you're doing is getting noticed. And again, I go back to if you're playing it safe, nobody has an opinion of you. And there you go. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Creativity or disruption, by definition, is an inefficient process. The shortest distance between point A and B is a straight line. But if you look at the visual representation of the universe's most fundamental part pattern, the Fibonacci sequence, there's a reason it doesn't follow a straight line. If you see the flight path of a bee around a flower as it finds its way towards the nectar, it hovers around it in reducing radius concentric circles until it gets there. And once it hones on it, is the point where you found your sweet spot and the whole herd comes flying in. <laughs> so That's a really good analogy. Long story short, <laughs> I think innovation and efficiency will always be at healthy odds with each other and they should be. Yeah. Because innovation sets the way and then efficiency allows you to make it scalable. The assembly line that Henry Ford put together didn't lead to the invention of the Ford D model. It led to the mass production of it. The invention is always an inefficient problem. And I think the critics, which are necessary because they keep the marketers honest and responsible, but I think innovation is a pursuit where again, 
one has to allow for a bit more of failure. And there will always be some spectacular failures that you will be known for as the spectacular successes <laughs> you create. Let's speak of award-winning work. I know you've sat on various juries locally, internationally, so you have been exposed to a lot of good award-winning work. First and foremost, why is it important to even win awards? You know, one of the Beale's marketing ambition to be is to be the most uh, effective, engaged, and respected marketing team globally. And for us, respected comes with the element of we want to win awards as well why is winning awards important for brands see awards serve a purpose of vanity like every industry but i think they also serve a strategic purpose because at worst it's a it's an affirmation of what you're doing is right but at best it can actually be a strategic tool when it comes to the subject of talent good talent wants to work with award winning companies good companies like winning awards because it improves their reputation and their employer brand at the same time there is probably overdose of just the number of marketing awards that exist on this planet today <laughs> so overdose. i think i think i mean at least the view we've taken as a company is that we like awards but we choose our award shows carefully yeah because awards is also a great way of testing where your work stands against the best in the world true so it's like it's a great reality check of what you think is a breakthrough where does it stack up against the best in the country best in the region best in the world yeah as long as you're doing it for reasons beyond vanity awards are and will rem- remain important. so i think that's that's a key thing beyond vanity it's great you know great ego booster when you win awards i like what you said earlier about building the employer brand which it does as we've built digitribe together we've sat on many interviews together interviewing uh, resources to come onto the team and there's one question i usually ask and i say you know why do you want to come you know work here here meaning for digitribe and your employer is ogilvy africa and i hear a lot of you know young talent saying because of it's the name it's ogilvy it's Ogilvy Africa is part of WPP it's you know so it's a really really important and and I think that's great on the other hand I think in terms of effectiveness I think one thing that is maybe we don't communicate enough is award winning campaigns are usually very effective in driving business outcomes I know you and I are both uh, sitting on the WRC awards panel that's going on right now what can you say about the work that you've been you know seeing coming out of is it effective work does it drive business outcomes because even the award shows have evolved over the years and i think the my experience in last 15 or so years when i've been exposed to award shows the gap between excellence awards and impact awards as i call them okay so the creative awards and the effectiveness awards the gap is getting narrower and narrower and narrower yeah and i think the yardstick of what equals great work today has got to be about and like we were talking earlier if the whole world's priority is outcome based it's brilliant input that leads to a brilliant outcome yes is what's worthy of a great award and which is why if you see the gun report for the last few years the most awarded creative campaigns are also the most awarded effectiveness campaigns and vice versa so that old paradigm of boring and effective should win <laughs> or exciting and ineffective should win luckily both are getting weeded out slowly and steadily from the books of excellence yeah and i think brilliance that builds impact is probably the only yardstick which is blurring the lines between the two 
And the more recent trend that I'm seeing over the last four or five years is when it comes to impact, juries are taking a slightly more wider view of impact, where it's not just business impact and, and brand impact. There's also a lot of significance being given to the societal and the human impact it creates. Yeah. So you could look at it as three-tiered layer or a three-tiered journey, where it's great work that builds business and has a positive impact on the society, I think is the right gold standard of excellence and worthy of good awards. And happy to inform that uh, KBL recently won first gold lorry that we've ever won and it was on shared value for Senator. Yeah. No, and it is the pattern and I think it's pushing the practitioners also in the right direction. Yeah. Because social missions and social consciousness, diversity, inclusion now have to become sort of core agendas of the organizations rather than something we do on the periphery. Right. And when brands start living those values through the work, it's far better than just a brilliant idea that sold more beer and did nothing more. There you go. So which marketing campaign have you seen in the last 12 to 18 months that, you know, has really felt effective in that sense? Award-winning. I think this was uh, one of the one-show winners earlier this year. A campaign called Pain Stories. It dealt with the subject of what women go through during the menstrual cycle and how most of the world doesn't talk about what half the world goes through every month. And it was a combination of users, customers, artists, content creators, all just hearing pain stories of real women of what they were going through and visualizing those as pieces of art, which then became shareable content that started bring the subject out of taboo and into everyday conversations. We can post a link in the chat if you like. Yeah. But I think even as a even as a practitioner, it was a very interesting campaign that sort of erases these silos of you could call it a piece of content marketing, you could call it a piece of social media marketing, you could call it a piece of advertising, you could call it a piece of artist collaborations, digital influencer, social. It plays very well at not being any of those disciplines, but playing at the intersections of all of them. And that's, I think, the brilliance of people who put it together. Because as a practitioner, you'll really struggle to classify it in under any one heading because it belongs to... Did it meet your criteria of being a consumer-centric campaign, of driving business outcomes? By the way, who, who was the brand behind this? Bodyform. Okay. They're a female health and hygiene company in the US. Okay. And they were driving it purely with an intent of giving a voice and legitimizing a conversation subject, which was important for their audiences, but there wasn't enough social permission to speak about it freely. So what they essentially did was gave a mute subject a voice. And it obviously, if it if it impacts half the human population, it's got to be relevant. Oh, yeah. And it also created positive business impact out of the sheer affinity. It turned them from the female audiences. So it ticks a lot of those boxes and does that in a manner that doesn't seem layered or a multimedia 360 degree campaign if you know what i mean yeah sounds like it was a very progressive campaign and again it goes back to i can just imagine um the agency briefing the clients and saying we want to do this so it means there's a lot of bravery involved i'm sure you have many stories where you've 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 briefed you know ideas to the client including me let me just call myself out and we're not brave enough or we say oh, we're too busy running around doing other 
the normal work versus doing things that would really have an impact. What's your advice on for, for marketers to start taking on these things and, you know, getting out of our comfort zone almost? See, I think getting out of the comfort zone for the sake of it is also not a great thing. Okay. At the same time, I mean, I call it the PowerPoint graveyard. <laughs> Did you say PowerPoint graveyard? Yeah, it's the <laughs> ideas that were possibly germs of a breakthrough <laughs> that died on PowerPoint. <laughs> <laughs> because there was either a thematic or a promo or a tactical brief that came in the way. True. Now, I'm not saying that any of those things. Is mm. But I think what we tend to do, even as agencies, is try and define our, our work lives in a way that this is my regular work and this is my award work. In my opinion, that's a recipe for disaster because... What it does is creates a culture of this is the little R&D machine where we'll do some experiment. But most of our bread and butter work would be what we already know. And therefore, we give ourselves permission. So it's even wrong to say I'm putting aside 10% for innovation work. So putting aside 10% for innovation is not wrong at all. Okay. But giving that 10% the permission to percolate your biggest briefs rather than your manufactured for excellence briefs right is the difference yeah can we do an innovation on the next campaign which is a life and death priority for the brand rather than do some predictable boring stuff on that and say now what we can do on innovation yeah it's like when we put innovation like a sidecar to the motorbike yeah it'll never have an engine of its own to go somewhere a great, a great example of that is Digitribe. I consider Digitribe an innovative way of working, an in- innovative way of way we wanted to connect with our consumers. And Digitribe is not just, it's not just the people, it's, it's what we decided to do. And when we were starting Digitribe, if you remember, we decided to work with the biggest brand at EABL, which is the Tasca trademark. And Tasca was ailing from a brand equity, had been ailing for several years. And we said, we're going to work with Tasca. Now, we could have said, we're going to work with one of the smaller brands that had just been launched, you know, unnoticeable. So if we failed, you know, the business wouldn't come. But we said, we're going to work with the biggest brand. And then in turn, we went to the, you know, we partnered with the biggest brand. The head of BIAG and said, we'll work with you. And so there was pressure, like, you know, what if... You know, the good news story is, you know, Tasca has turned around, um, not just because of the work of Digitribe. There's a lot of work that has done all around uh, for the business, in the business for Tasca to turn around. So I'm rambling along. I don't, I can't remember what my point was. I think I was just giving an example. No, you're, abs- <laughs> See, you're absolutely right. Because I think we need to give ourselves permission to sometimes take the big swings. Mm-hmm. Playing safe to the extent that we must protect our businesses is important. Correct. But I think playing safe is not enough. And it starts with people because people build the culture that build the organization. And I think if the one thing, let's say, all marketing leaders started to do from tomorrow is give each of the marketing minds in their teams the permission to fail spectacularly once a year, I think that churn rate or the burn rate of failures will also start going down because mediocrity otherwise ends up becoming the excuse or rather best practice will soon start becoming the excuse for mediocrity and I think we need to take that away from our youngsters because it's not just the seasoned people who have the experience sometimes the open mind that inexperience brings in is actually a lot more fertile towards it yeah the problem is most of our brand managers are scared to death to get it wrong 
and they are so scared to get it wrong that we are probably taking away the opportunity from them to get it brilliantly right yeah so i think and it takes a lot of character from the leadership to permit failure because we will still need to stand in front of the cfo every quarter and justify the return on the money yeah. we spent yeah but that's what the pressure of leadership in this world looks like now and i love what you're saying about listening to the younger voices the more inexperienced voices because first of all ideas come from everywhere we shouldn't wait for the agency to come with this is the idea and also in terms of them consuming even the the media the spaces where our consumers are Correct. you know i always i always laugh and i say you know don't ask me for my opinion on this digital work because i'm not on tiktok i'm not on you know i'm not in this space am i really your target audience you know so i think that's really important well, that's an admirable quality because too many seasoned marketers do not have the maturity to almost disqualify themselves from having an opinion on a few things because i mean look at east africa a lot of our countries the median age is in the teens right 40 something cmos are not necessarily the best judges of all things and i think the day we start discrediting ourselves and giving the younger voices a little more decibel level with our support our role as enablers may be more valuable than our role as critics very true finally what's the one book that you believe every marketer should read my favorite marketing book is actually not a marketing book but freakonomics would probably be the one i would say mhm and now again marketing is we're also as we speak business transformation we also speak a lot about data driven marketing right i think what freakonomics did to me the first time i read it was you always know numbers are important it just opens your mind to the almost infinite applicability of what you can do with numbers to real life scenarios and i think most marketers have read too much marketing already and we are obsessing over big data and analytics and data marketing platforms and cdps <laughs> a lot these days but i think what a book like freakonomics did for me at least was to give me the perspective of why we are doing it mhm and if you look at numbers long enough and right enough how they start telling a story and it also gives you the corollary of that which is uh, and i think there's a famous quote around it that if you torture data long enough it'll also confess to whatever it confesses <laughs> so it gives you a balanced perspective between both those endpoints okay i've actually not read it i'm now very curious to go read it what would you see as the picture of success 12 months from now if if we sat down and had a coffee again or our favorite alcoholic beverage what would be your picture of success saying we did this and we achieved this and we were successful so let me look at it inside out and outside in okay let's look outside in first like you said a year or so down the line we were acknowledged as one of the best practices or best in class in africa i think our next goal should be to remove in africa from that sentence and make digitribe just best in class compared to anything else on the planet it's not an easy goal but it's the only worthwhile goal that if two global organizations have come together in service of something in africa i think it's an opportunity to genuinely put something made in africa out into the world as a best practice and i think that might be a worthwhile shared ambition to have i'm very reluctant to put a deadline to it because it's a scary <laughs> one but so i think that's the, also the only worth goal worth it i like it it's it's a big hairy audacious goal a bag i love bags because they keep you up at night um they're very scary but once you accomplish them it almost becomes like your legacy you know and that's actually the inside out bit that if i look at 
the next version of Digitribe or next version of Feed inside out. I would love to see it become a self-sustaining ecosystem that thrives long after Vaitheras and Vikases of the world are gone and actually starts becoming something that helps the industry move forward as a new way of work. Yeah, absolutely. And that's slightly personal, but I think it's the honest inside-out goal that I would have. I love that. What are your parching shots, Vikas? I think marketers should talk a little less than they do. <laughs> what does that mean? <laughs> uh, and I, I think I'm equally guilty of it. See, marketers are an opinionated bunch. Yeah. And when I say marketers, I include their partners in crime and culprits like agencies in it as well. I think there's a lot of discussion and debate bias we have built into our industry because A, it's full of intelligent people and we love to hear ourselves talk. But I think a little more of an action bias versus a discussion bias would probably make us, including you and me, a lot more effective. Agreed. Challenge accepted. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, Vikas. It was really great having this discussion, this chat. And thank you for your partnership uh, with us on Digitribe and the many other things we're doing or looking forward to doing going forward. Thanks for having me here.